Hi, this is Glenn Lowry at The Glenn Show, uh, Substack.com and YouTube. I'm with Nikita Petrov, who's creative director at The Glenn Show. I've been working with for uh, over a year, very fruitfully. And we collaborate on producing content for The Glenn Show, of which this is one instance. Uh, Nikita is uh, occupied with the question about collective and personal responsibility for political events and national action. He can expand on that. Uh, he wants to liken that question from the point of view of a Russian in the face of the Ukraine uh, conflict with the similar question that a person of color, a black person, an African-American, someone like myself might pose in terms of collective responsibility for the deeds of my people, quote unquote. What do we mean by my people and what are the entailments of being among a people when the people take actions that you might abhor or that might embarrass you or et cetera. So anyway, uh, that's by way of introduction to this, uh, to this edition of The Glenn Show. I'm happy to be talking with Nikita Petrov. I'm very grateful for you taking the time to talk to me. Um, okay, so yeah, so in uh, an attempt to further frame this, so I'm Russian, I've lived in Russia all my life or almost all of my life. Uh, I was in Russia when the war started I left about three weeks in, and since then, as pretty much every Russian in a similar situation that I've talked to, I've been trying to process my feelings about the situation, try to figure out whether they're actionable. Uh, so there's a lot of you know shame for the actions of my country and my countrymen, uh, and I'm trying to figure out whether that shame is even warranted, and if it is, then... What do I do about it? What is my place in all of this? And uh, it's like endless conversations about all of this with, with other Russians and or Armenians because now I'm in Armenia. Uh, and not many conclusions. And so I thought I could try to uh, get some of your wisdom. Uh, I wanna ask you about your thoughts and relationship to your situation, your feelings about quote-unquote your people, your thinking as an economist about the relationship between the individual and the group. But in the background, I'll be thinking about my situation and try to figure out whether there is insight to be gained there. And hopefully, if there is, then it might be, uh, um, it might suggest that there's a even broader insight about the relationship between an individual and a group, and not just Russians or Americans or Black Americans or whatever. Um, so I guess the starting point would be to talk about this very idea of quote unquote, my people. Um, and, and the way to, f to pose that question that came to my mind is my, my situation. Okay, so um, I've left Russia or even before I left Russia, I'm uh, ridden with these feelings of guilt and powerlessness and the abhorrent actions of that are done on my behalf. Um, and, and, and there was a particular moment, I'm walking down the street and I'm thinking about this and it's this kind of my people frame of mind. And then something clicked and I thought, why am I talking, thinking about Russians as my people. 
uh, or more specifically, the Russian state or, you know, the cops and the soldiers. While I have a friend in Kiev who is the first three weeks of the war, she was there and she would go to the basement to hide from the, you know, when the sirens start to, um, the, the alarms start to go off. She's my people. She's Ukrainian. Um, she's an actual friend. I know her. Uh, and she's being oppressed more violently than I ever had, but she's being oppressed by the same group, you know, the Russian state. Like I was, a, a, you know, a Protestant Russia and I'm trying to run away from a cop and she's running away from missiles. It's the same entity that's oppressing her and myself, but for some reason I'm thinking of that entity as my, my people. So the question would be, what does that term mean? Uh, and, and how do you relate to that term? Who do you think about when you say my people? Yeah. Uh, so I, I have questions for you. Uh, you left. Do you feel guilty about leaving? Do, do you feel somehow that you were running away from something uh, and abandoning the situation, maybe putting your own personal well-being above your people, quote unquote? The futility of, of resistance, uh, you, you could stay and fight against what you think is wrong, but of course you would just be crushed. So there's... You know, there's no point in committing suicide because of the the misdeeds of your country. Suicide in the sense of overtly resisting and then being, you know, that that's not a responsible way to to actually handle the situation. Anyway, that was a question. Do you feel guilty about leaving? There's some of that. Obviously, that's a question that's been on my mind, and the way I've been thinking about it is kind of in your words. You sometimes use uh, the phrase, there's a cover story and a real story. And the cover story is uh, what I've told myself, what I've told other people at times is. So I'm in Russia, the first three weeks of the war, me and my girlfriend, fiance. Uh, and and we, we talk amongst ourselves and we say, if we stay, we have to fight. And we don't see any way to fight. Uh, what you've just laid out. And so the cover story is, if I want to help, I will stand a better chance of helping if I leave and then try to figure out what actions are available to me, uh, which of them are effective. Um, and that's what I told myself, uh, and that's why I, at times, keep telling myself. But the other part of the story is fear, uh, is practical, uh, you know, considerations. Like I wasn't able to get paid because of the sanctions that are imposed on Russia by the West. So there were <laughs> the way I sort of avoid, I guess, the question is. 
there are many different reasons for me to leave. There were many different reasons for me to leave, and I didn't have to choose which of them is the real reason because they they seem to align. I still we Karina and I talk about Russians who've stayed, and we argue about that because she's saying, if you are in Russia, well, you have to do something. You have to be doing something, uh, and and if you're not, then you're to blame. And I'm saying. Yes, but then if I stayed, I don't know what I would be doing because I don't see uh, an effective way to fight this. Uh, and the ways that I can think of would just put me in danger and getting arrested uh, and, and getting you know in jail. That doesn't help the cause, and it also doesn't help me. So I guess there's not a... The answer to the guilt question, yes, I do feel some guilt. Uh, the answer to the question whether that was the right choice, I I don't know. Okay. So one thing that I think is that the following is too easy. Um, I have a friend in Kiev. She is she, isn't mm -hmm. it? And I are, that's my people. To, to kind of gloss over the connection and to then step up to some higher level, I think that might be a cop-out. I'm not sure it's actually addressing the problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, in some sense, that's absolutely correct. She is your people and you are not defined by your nationality or whatever, not, no more so than I'm defined by my race. And I, I could easily just say I'm a man of the world. I'm not a black American. I'm just a person. I, and I'm thinking that that's too easy. Um, it's, it's almost self-evidently true, but it, it, it's an abstraction that doesn't actually come to grips with what's at stake. And I don't know in your case what it might be, but in my case, I think it's something about identity, culture, language, memory, uh, shared uh, sense of fate somehow. I'm, I'm, I'm a part of this thing that, that has a historical transgenerational, you know, the music, the words, the way they sound in my ear, my, my mother tongue. Um, the, the narratives, the, the, the way that we explain from whence we've come, something like that. I mean, and that that's real, that those connections are actually um, not arbitrary. Uh, they, they're like, they're all we've got at the end of the day. And anyway, I don't know. Does that make any sense to you? It does, yeah. My, my thinking on that was, has been that the things that you listed just now, they do stay with me, right? I, I speak Russian. Uh, a lot of my friends are Russian. Uh, I'm shaped by the Russian culture, et cetera, et cetera. And they will stay with me wherever I go so I can retain that identity wherever I live and whatever I do, even just my work. You know, I write and draw and uh, for somebody like reading my newsletter, it would be this Russians guy newsletter. 
uh, for reasons, you know, you can see threads of sort of cultural inheritance in it. Um, but, but the other part here is there's this project of Russia as a country, a nation, and a state. And if I don't play my part in making that a better project, then yeah, it is a cop out, right? It's it's like there's there's a load that was put on not just my shoulder, just like you know, you're born into a situation and you carry the weight of what the situation is, and then if you drop that load and not try to improve it, then it's not going to improve. And and that's probably part of the reason the situation I was born in was not was not that great because there was there were people before me who who could have done better. And and if every generation shies away from that responsibility and lets the more destructive or oppressive forces within their society to take charge and control, then this is never going to improve. And that's pretty hopeless. And I don't want to do that. But then I said, if I stay in Russia, I don't know how I fight. Well, now I've left and I'm still facing this question. So what do I do now? What is my responsibility now? And I'm trying to find an answer, but I haven't yet. Okay, so you're there, you're not there. That's, that's one kind of physically. You're physically there, you're not there. That's one kind of thing. But even if not there, you could still be caught up in the project of mm-hmm. constructing what it means to be Russian uh, or, you know, trying to work that out. I mean, maybe you're, you're in exile. Maybe it's only for a season. You know, it, it depends on contingencies. Uh, but your heart never leaves. You, you know, your, your mind and, and your concerns, you could be organized and effective even if, and maybe even more effective, as you say, even if not physically there. And then the question would be, why do that? I mean, what, what is your obligation or responsibility to, to um, a, a address yourself to that? I mean, you, you, it, it is your problem somehow. Uh, isn't it uh, in a way that it's not my problem? Yes, though that's another question, and it may get a little too abstract. But um, is it not everybody's problem? I mean, so this is. I was listening to an interview with a Russian musician who also left. And and he's talking to these other Russians who are like the rest of us. This is horrible, the guilt, the shame, the this and that. And he says, the war never stopped. Like that this particular war is what you feel so strongly about now. But uh how aware are you of wars that 
have happened in the 20th century on the African continent, let's say. Those are people too. Uh, and we look away and we feel like it's not our business. So you feel strongly about atrocities that are being committed when it's in your neighborhood. But aren't we all people? Aren't we supposed to feel and, and try to improve this? You feel you know, strongly in trying to improve the situation with the like human species. And then if we get a little less abstract than that, your government, your state is involved. Uh, it may be on the quote unquote good side, uh, but there are decisions that are being made. Uh, those decisions are going to have consequences. Um, being on a good side or feeling like you're on, on the right side doesn't necessarily mean that you're, actions that are going to be beneficial. Uh, so you, as an American voter, an American citizen, how do you feel about the actions of your country and more importantly, your role in those actions? Do you, do you have agency there? Okay, we're talking about Russia and Ukraine, but we could be talking about the United States and uh, the various uh, globally uh, relevant uh, entailments, that, entanglements, and, and, and involvements that the United States has had. And there's, of course, a vast critical literature and corpus of reflection and journalism and art and politics that puts the United States in a very different light than would the flag-waving patriotic American who endorses what our government is doing for all these abstract things like freedom and democracy and so on. When in fact it could be and probably is and has been something much darker than that, uh, you know, for greed, uh, for ideological distorted and, you know, kind of uh, really evil, you know, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, and you think about the power, I mean, the, the trillions of dollars invested in armament and the institutional depth of uh, the military massive industrial, you know, selling arms to the Saudis for billions and hundreds of billions of dollars. And, it, you know, I don't know, could go on like this for a long time, couldn't we? I mean, Vietnam and, and Latin America, the reaction to the Cuban, you know, uh, entailment with apartheid and support for the status quo. And, and even... Not to mention Israel <laughs> and Palestine. And, and, and even... You, <laughs> we didn't talk about even that. Ukraine. Don't, don't say that you heard me say it. I didn't say it. <laughs> What so anyway, what, I'm sorry, I'm rambling because the question of what is my responsibility hits me now in a, in a way that, because you ask it of yourself vis-a-vis -vis Russia, and I haven't really been asking it of myself vis-a-vis -vis the United States. And moreover, I've been writing essays like The Case for Black Patriotism. I've been waving the flag over here myself to a certain degree. I went to that National <laughs> Conservatism <laughs> Conference in Orlando, Florida, and gave an address to a wild <laughs> reception of applause and accolade. So I'm, you know, I'm flirting with, more than flirting with, this is not about me, this is about you actually, but I'm just, I'm just noticing that I'm flirting with all these forces and then the issue of responsibility. 
if if I say something uh, defensive in the uh, defense of Trump, mm-hmm. for example, I mean, I I have a friend. Uh, thanks for indulging me, Nikita, uh, who is a dear friend I've known for you know forty years practically, and uh, he's a dyed in the wool. He was an Obama. He's he's a he's a dyed in the wool, uh, never Trump kind of uh, guy and whatnot. And, and he he confronted me uh, recently to say, "Why are you not, you know, like fighting? You know, the country is in the hand. Half the country, the party of the right, is in the hands of a madman, uh, kind of you know, destructive force. You know, whatever. What's my responsibility? You know." So I didn't answer any questions. I, I, I'm just saying, yeah, uh, I, it seems like I would have to have some responsibility for what happens in my, in my name, quote unquote, and what happens on behalf of historical forces that I am identifying with, that, that I'm, I'm affiliating myself with. You know, don't I have responsibility for what they do? Uh, I, at the end of the day, I have to somehow reckon with it and say that notwithstanding the bad, the good outweighs the bad somehow. I'd have to be, or I'm working to make right whatever it is that's wrong. And maybe one would reach a point where you just dissociate yourself from it. You, you, you know, it's not my country anymore. I don't don't know. What about, so going back to the original question about my people, um, the quote-unquote my people. So you've been heard saying things like, I feel shame in regards to the action of my people talking about black Americans, I think. Um, what is the, how do I put it? What is the, how do you break it up? Black Americans and Americans generally, do you feel stronger about the uh prevalent attitudes or behavior within the black American community than America at large. I I actually do. And I don't know if it can be defended. I was just with Camille Foster, uh, this guy who's a podcaster and public intellectual black guy. And, you know, he's a kind of race abolitionist, Mm -hmm. you know, where he, you know, he's black, but he, he, why are you calling me black? I mean, I'm, you know, I I uh, refuse to accept your categorizations of me, kind of posture. And uh, in from that point of view, feeling any embarrassment or the opposite of it, any pride in the accomplishments or embarrassments at the failures would be irrational, based on the fact that you're black and and the other people are black. It's it's uh, an arbitrary way of classifying people. It's not the essence of a person. Why, why would it be the basis of collective, of shared experience? Now, I feel pride when my son achieves an honor. I, I feel a sense of accomplishment, a sense of gratification, a feeling of en- ennoblement. I'm, I'm a better person for that, I feel. Um, I'm happy. I'm happy for my son. Uh, I share in the joy of his accomplishment. And your parents too, right? Uh, 
Yeah, and the son presumably would be proud of his father's accomplishments. He would he would be ashamed of his father if his father were to humiliate and discredit himself and the family name. Even this idea of a family name. Why would a family have a name? You know, a reputation. They're a good family. They're a rotten family. That This idea, the sins of the father, you might think. But no, I think that's too easy. I think the sins of the father doesn't get at it because there is an organic connection that you, you're somehow joined in with the person. I mean, my son, uh, I raised right. him, you know. I mean, my son, he has me as a model of how to be in the world and look at what he has accomplished. I'm proud of his accomplishment because it's partly my accomplishment. Uh and and because it contributes to this thing I'm calling the family name, which is this uh, aura that hovers over people that they inherit. They don't earn it. They they inherit it in virtue of being born into the family. Something like that. Uh, but but what about strangers and, and who happen to share nothing more than? Well, so I'm from the south side of Chicago, a black neighborhood. Uh, there were people there. Uh, there was, you know, uh, a history, a shared experience, uh, hopes and dreams, uh, joys and sorrows. Uh, that there was a a a, a vernacular, a, a rhythm, a you know, a, a style, a way of life uh, that I identify with. I mean, it's it's built into my very being. Uh, Others who have that similar experience, they, they share something with me that is a knowing understanding of some commonality. Uh, I, I don't think this is a necessarily, it's necessarily a bad thing. Uh, likewise, as I say, there's a flip side to it, which is when, when there are tremendous achievements of, uh, you know, great honor and heights are scaled and whatnot. I, I feel exaltation. I, I feel as, you know, uh, but I, I don't know. Okay. I have another question that's related, <laughs> you know, you know, where to wait. Um, so Russians, uh, serfdom was abolished in Russia in what? 1861. Slavery was abolished in American 1865, right? That's four years uh, of difference. And of course, in both cases, full freedom doesn't come right at that second. And then uh, the, it would get harder to draw parallels between the Russian and the Black American experience. But um, so the question is, do you think it's better or worse for the society to be able to trace the history of this oppression to a particular group that uh, continues its, retains its identity as a group. Because in America of today, there's no slavery and there's, uh, you know, the, the rights have been, um, civil rights have been achieved by the, America, uh, by the black Americans. Yeah. In Russia, I would say, actually, Russians today have fewer rights and freedoms than black Americans in America. But uh, the other part of it is in America, if you're black, right. you trace 
this history of oppression clearly because you you have the same color as the previous generations in Russia the descendants of the serfs and the descendants of the nobility look the same and then if you look at the soviet history uh the the phrase that is often repeated is half the country was jailed half the country was guarded which is a simplification but does highlight the the history of that country and usually if you look closely to the history of any family you'll find people on both sides so somebody was in chika somebody was shot by the chika is it better or worse for a society to have these lines draw drawn more clearly i think it's clearly worse um I guess I'd have to try to defend that position but I I think it's it's worse and it, it it's worse perhaps even also for the groups and peoples in question to see themselves in that way to continue to build and reproduce a sense of identity around the fact of this uh uh violation or oppression victimization uh I think it's worse in that it creates what are black and white differentiations of a situation of moral complexity that is you know really not black or white that's gray where there's degrees and there's everybody is somehow compromised and implicated uh and yet you try to i mean in the case of slavery of course there's the fact that the whole slave trade was built on the foundation of a- internal to africa uh exploitation and uh conquest and uh the accumulation of these bodies who were then sold to Europeans and shipped across the Atlantic uh so the the idea of seeing slavery i mean i'll get into trouble for saying this but i mean it's just true isn't it as a uh unidirectional uh uh domination of white i mean I'm, somehow these these labels are anachronistic they're like projecting back onto the past something that has only been constructed in the last couple of hundred years uh european dominators who you know conquered and conquest i mean that's not the whole story by a long shot uh i don't know so I think it's bad. I think it's uh uh I think it's bad for the people who who will live under the shadow that they are they are in they're living in reaction to the fact of their oppression. It's as if they're their being is a mirror image of something and not a not an expression of its own thing. Uh, what about so i'm thinking about russia if it was the case that like let's say people who were engaged in any way with the kgb had marks on their faces <coughs> um it may have been easier for the rest of us to form an identity separate from them 
and then to use that identity to fight against them. So people like the serfs, the descendants of the serfs in Russia, or the descendants of people who were, whatever, put in the gulag, could join together and say, we're going to fight on behalf of our ancestors, as well as on our own, against this group of... I see. Right? So there's, there might be some degree of empowerment to share yeah, this identity with uh, oppressed um, forefathers. Yeah, I, I can see an argument like that being made about race in, in America, where you say uh, the, libera the liberation struggles around the dis slavery abolition and then civil rights were uh, possible only because of the people who were victimized having marks on their bodies that were recognizable, but also that the society was made better for that because the mobilization of uh, advocacy for rights and, and protest, uh, liberation, the, the, the movement of liberation could have ex expression in other areas of, with respect, for example, to women's rights or sexual liberation or whatever. I mean, I'm not, I'm not all that enthusiastic about <laughs> those uh, implications. Uh, not that I'm against women's rights or gay rights or whatever, just... <laughs> That I think the liberationist spirit can can go too far, and that I'm a conservative man. I mean, I you know I think you need to hold on to some stuff, or at least be slow to let it go. I'm prepared to give religion the time of day, even though I'm not as religious as I used to be. But I I just don't think it's an easy problem. What is the meaning of our existence, and and where are the foundations that we can hold on to for a, a sense of uh, our human dignity and But not I, I, you know, I think it's a hard problem. So I, I, when people struggle for millennia in trying to grapple with that problem, I'm, I'm, I'm low to just throw it off with a shrug. Anyway, I'm rambling again. Uh, you, you, the, the point was whether or not the identity built around the inheritance of, uh, of victimization of one kind or another could, was that a good or a bad thing for society? And you're saying in the, to the extent that it becomes a focal point for people to Uh, organize their their activities around it, it could well be a good thing. And yeah, I, I think it, maybe that's right. We're just talking here. <laughs> um, okay, another question. I'm, I'm jumping back and forth between these topics that we've touched upon already and that we haven't. Um, so you're in, what should I say? There are, there's a group that you refer to as people with three names that uh, you're uh, in a kind of indirect clash with. And I saw uh, one of these people on Twitter talking shit, uh, saying to you that you can't, like, they, they, this is an unfair, obviously, I think, critique, uh, that you're somehow not quote-unquote authentically black or something because, okay, you're from the hood, you're from the south side of Chicago, but you're not there anymore. And there are some people who've stayed there. Um, and I wonder if, if, 
is there any kind of a parallel between a Russian who left Russia and a black American who's left their neighborhood and moved onto a better neighborhood, let's say? Um, and I don't actually know how, you know, white or black the neighborhood you're in right now is. It's very white. There are no <laughs> black people in the neighborhood that I live in, in on the east side of Providence. I mean, if there are, I don't, I haven't met them yet. But I mean, in my neighborhood, of course, you could put the word neighborhood in quotes. It's not just where you live, but it's where you spend mm -hmm. your time and, you know, where you work and, and who you know and who you, you know. Um, and... Uh, it's true that I don't live in the black community, quote unquote. I, I do not have not for some time. I'm I'm a cosmopolitan, uh, upper middle class, uh, uh, elite uh, academic. I mean, you know, we just got back from uh, England and France, and uh, we we you know. I went to a party the other day of black people. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine here who's black. We, it's our jazz listeners club. Right. Our jazz listeners <laughs> club here in Providence, Rhode Island. Some guys that like to listen to, to tunes and uh, smoke cigars and drink whiskey uh, and appreciate music. And so one of them, Jay Acosta is his name, uh, had a party at his house. And it turned out that it was a big family reunion gathering of his family to which we friends were invited. And uh, there were people of all ages, of all sizes and shapes, but they were all black people within this family of all walks of life. You know, there was an old guy who was fascinated by the fact that I had been in France and he wanted to ask me all these different kind of questions about what it was like abroad. I mean, this guy was like in his 80s, and I don't think he had ever been mm -hmm. uh, in Europe. And he was very curious and whatnot. Uh, and uh, there were little kids around and everything in between. And there was a DJ uh, who was playing really, really good music. Uh, and, you know, everybody's, you know, was moving to the rhythm of the music and they were laughing and talking and, and they were all black. It was like an, a it reminded me of uh, such gatherings in my own family in my childhood and young adulthood in Chicago. And um, I had only allotted an hour to go by and visit in my busy schedule. And they ended up staying for three hours just because I enjoyed the ambiance. I, I just wanted to be with those people. Uh, and it's a rare experience for me to be with other African-Americans of a same cultural uh, orientation uh, for, uh, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't happen often in my life. So no, I don't live in the hood. I, I don't know what that has to do with me being black. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, it's almost like a claim of loyalty somehow. And I mean, I think I know it was Nicole Hannah-Jones, wasn't it? Who, yes, it was, uh, yeah. who, who made that comment. <laughs> And I mean, you know, <laughs> she's not any blacker than I am. I mean, certainly not where she lives doesn't have anything to do with it. I mean, for crying out loud, uh, I, you know, 
She can write her memoir and I can write mine and then let the reader judge which one is the blackest. <laughs> Believe me, I know something about the hood. I mean, I, I you know, I'm as authentic <laughs> uh, a uh, son of this great river of humanity, which is African-American, black American, uh, you know, whatever, I, you know. She's not any blacker than I am. I, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I almost don't want to dignify that kind of claim with a, with a, a coherent and structured rebuttal. It's part of the reason um, I uh, omitted her name when I asked the question. <laughs> um, there, there's an added... Uh, so again, I'm thinking about in the background of my mind about my situation, but there's an added... Uh, how do I phrase it, layer of your connection to your black community, which is, regardless of where you live, you keep talking about the issues that are facing the black community. You're providing, you know, your view of, of how to go forward, that there's a contribution there intellectually. There's also a contribution at the Glenn Show. We give 10% to the Woodson Center of the Proceedings at Substack, and and that is, I guess, the way we phrase it now at the pre-roll uh, for the Glenn Show episodes is 10% goes to something like black empowerment. Uh, or No, that's probably not the right word. Whatever it is. Um, the way I phrase this question when I was preparing for the conversation is why black empowerment why uh why are we donating 10 percent to and maybe maybe not only like why we are donating 10 percent to the sort of black cause but also why some of these causes are defined that way so for example uh sylvia bennett stone is the director or, or um, i'm not sure what her title is at the Voices of Black Mothers United. So this is helping people who have suffered from violence, mothers who lost their children to violence in American streets, white yes. black um, families who lost children. Why not every family that lost a child? And I'm sure she would say, Yes, we do mean every family in the fullness of time. We we start with a focus on black families because that's where we are. Um, and this is a phenomenon, the loss of children to gun violence and uh, is especially uh, prominent amongst uh, African-Americans, amongst blacks. I should be clear. I mean, I, I do mean blacks. I don't mean African-Americans, but you know we could we could go into the linguistics but in any case i think she'd say you know we welcome and then she would point to things that they're doing like joining with mothers who've lost children to suicide in a wealthy white suburb where there's high competition amongst the kids for academic achievement and they feel like they're under pressure and some of these kids end up taking their lives because they can't handle the pressures that they're under or the social pressures or whatever. And she's reached out to them uh, and has some things that are gesturing in that direction. But it's a good question. It's a fair question. 
Um, so this kind of collective action organized around ethnicity, uh, I, I mean, you know, it could be Jewish, it could be Irish, it, it could be Catholic, it, it, it could be uh, uh, you know, based on uh, inherited uh, ties to, to others. And you could say you're starting there. That's not necessarily where you want to end up. Or, or you could say that these are the most pressing problems and I, I, I feel responsible somehow to address myself to them as they manifest themselves amongst, quote, my people. Um, there could be a larger narrative so here's one. Uh, the, the black, the Africans were enslaved. Slavery was a system of domination. It dehumanized, it reduced, it uh, limited, it, it encumbered. People strove to express their humanity notwithstanding this, and there are many marks of heroism and the enduring power of the human spirit to be found, but nonetheless... People are held back. So here goes this narrative. This is the story, the story that justifies the, the fealty to some kind of blackness. So uh, slavery ends. It ends with the emancipation of people, but the people are not, they're not relieved of all of the burdens and deficits and encumbrances uh, that attended the fact of their enslavement simply by having been declared free. Free to do what? They still have to make a life. They, they have to somehow overcome all these words, these words. Um, they, they have something to prove. Do they have something to prove? If the system of their domination was ideologically supported by a belief in their inferiority, do they need to address themselves to the question of their own non-inferiority? Do they have anything to prove? Should they care at all about how they're perceived by others? Should their self-perception in any way acknowledge the fact of their diminishment because of the oppression, et cetera? So, so this, is, this is the way I'm thinking about the uh, journey the, the saga of, uh, of black people in, in America. I'm thinking about us as being a part of this multi-generational process of moving from, from slavery to freedom. This is a cliche in a way, but, but moving into a position of equality within the society. Again, I know that people will object. They would say, why would you even problematize the question of their equality? Of course, they are by definition equal, they would say. And I would say, no. Um, I mean, at, at some level, of course, they're, they're equally worthy as human beings, of course. But I would say, no, I would say, and, and this goes to your question, am I feeling a sense of shame or, or uh, whatever about failures, about the violence and the crime, about the... Um, unwed mothers and, and uh, uh, single-parented children and abandoned children, about the educational failures and the, the need for 
all kinds of remedial, uh, uh, you know, supports in order to to achieve inclusion and et cetera. Um, you know, uh, I see that see it as an incompleteness of this transformation mm-hmm. of status from enslaved. So here we are now, a century and a half on from uh, the end of slavery. And I'm still talking in these terms. Moreover, the country is is very dynamic, and there are so many other things going on uh, in terms of the organic evolution of of the society than this particular thing that I'm talking about. Uh, it's only one of of a lot of different things that are going on. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe I'm in a maybe I'm a kind of uh, relic, uh, someone who's a part of another time and and i'm holding on to something and maybe the future does belong to you know thomas chatterton williams or uh, somebody like that this is the writer based in france now married to a french woman an american whose father is black and whose mother is white father black american mother a white american he's american he's living in france he's married to a french woman he has children and he speaks about how are those children to be understood? Are they black? I mean, in what sense are they black? What does that what 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 sense is that making in their in their lives and whatnot? Um, and maybe the right answer is the enduring answer of class mm-hmm. and class struggle, and uh, maybe their people, the people of the disadvantaged African Americans, maybe they're the marginalized uh, uh, people who've in parts of the country that have become depressed or where there's uh, despondency and, you know, drug dependency and all kinds of uh, pathology in those, the life of the families of uh, these people. The fact that they're not black hardly could be seen perhaps to not, not much matter. Uh, Maybe the issue of my responsibility for what my government does trumps by a wide margin, the responsibility for what people of my shared ethnicity do, and, and I'm just focused in the wrong place. I, I could see somebody making an argument like that. I'm trying to think. So you've mentioned the word shame again. And I'm trying to think about that feeling in my life right now. And when I think about... So the feeling of shame, it seems like it would have to be connected with the notion of responsibility. Like I should feel it's, it's more obvious that shame is warranted if it's something that I did or didn't do. Um, then if I'm thinking about, uh, somebody else who did or didn't do something, and I'm thinking about the Russian people, and I think I have two different sort of shades of that feeling, depending on whether I'm talking about, let's say, the supporters of the war or the supporters of the regime. Those were people who I've never agreed with. And, um, and, and you know, in my very modest way, try to, I don't know what the word is, fight or something. Uh, and then there's a shame that I feel for me, my actions or inactions, 
And then the failure of the people who were with me at, let's say, protests in Russia, trying to gain political agency, trying to get uh, the right to vote for who we want to vote, and we failed. And so I, I feel stronger about that. Like maybe I could have done more, or maybe we collectively could have done more. Maybe if we argued with each other a little less and, uh, and were able to, to unify and, and present a, a more unified front, uh, the situation would have been different. And I don't know how to phrase the question. I confess to being... Yeah, go, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, please. I, I don't know how to... No, I was just going to confess ignorance about Russian history of the last uh, 30 mm -hmm. or 40 years to be able to know exactly. And, and I was going to ask you whether you had an overarching narrative of the sort that I sketched where I start with slavery and I say the plight of a people enslaved who are adversely affected by that enslavement and who are then freed and have the challenge before them. And I'm seeing myself here all the way into the 21st century as being at the tail mm -hmm. end of this, of this drama of uh, the progression and transformation of the social status and, and self-understanding of the uh, descendants of slaves, you know, and of whom I count myself one. And whether there was anything like that for you about mm -hmm. Russia, because if, if so, it would seem to be relevant. Yeah. It, there, there is that narrative, though I, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to formulate it. Um, the uh, what, what should I call it? What should I say? Uh, the uh, uncharitable way of presenting that narrative that happens sometimes, people say things like that, is the reason we haven't been able, and by we I mean both sort of the strain uh, of the Russian society of which I, would, I, I feel more a part of than, than the Russian society. Broadly, people who wanted to have democracy or, or their rights affirmed, we failed to gain political agency. And then I could argue Russians as a nation don't have political agency because even if you support the regime, uh, yeah, you're not really asked about that. It's not that people go to the polling station to really make the decision, that the polling station has been prepared for them uh, so that they can only choose one. I'm simplifying, but, but, but that's the case. And then so the uncharitable interpretation would be we've never learned to take responsibility for our society because we were slaves or serfs in the 19th century, then the Soviet Union had its own kind of serfdom uh, with uh, people being jailed and sent to work in the camps, or even if you live in a city and you're uh, a citizen that has the same rights as, as your neighbor, you don't have a whole lot of uh, rights and freedoms, and so you, you're, not, you're not making these decisions for the society collectively. And then that system falls apart in 1991, and we had a very short window of trying to assert ourselves, the people, uh, to assert ourselves as the decision makers here. And part of the reason we failed, that narrative would go, 
is we haven't had this experience and we didn't didn't you know take that that opportunity to uh retain the freedoms that sort of fell into our lap the soviet union fell apart not because the russian or the soviet people rose up and and said uh to be done with this it it happened sort of without our um input and so then uh then what then 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 the question is how do you go from this position of submission to to one where you actually take charge okay i'm i'm going to ask an irreverent question and i i apologize in advance i intend no offense Here's the question I have in the back of my mind, and my ignorance will be revealed even in my asking of it. And again, I apologize. So one story is that these forces were imposed upon the Russian people. They're not somehow, they're they're distinct from, there's uh, the pre-revolutionary, pre-1917 order uh, feudalistic and whatever. There is the the uh, domination of the post-revolutionary uh, uh, government, the Soviet Union, and its uh, anti-democratic, uh, uh, authoritarian, autocratic. Uh, there's the collapse of the Soviet Union, and and it's a moment. And the moment passes and we have what we have now that has emerged. There's all the, I read some of those novels that you sent over mm-hmm. to me. There's all the corruption, all the, all the deadening of the soul, all, all of the decadence and, and the meaninglessness and the, and you know, there's, you know, and, and it's like they're underneath, there's the heartbeat of the Russian people. There's the soul, there's the beauty, there's the, you know, and it can't get out. It, it's, being, it's being repressed. So that's one story. But an, uh, a reaction to that story could be, that's way, way, way too simple. That, that, the, the, that's romantic. I don't know if the demos governed in Russia that it would be all flowers on the streets and all, all the tanks would be retired and there'd be no repression, there'd be no ethnic... There'd be no hatreds. There'd be no nationalist fervor. I don't know that. I don't know that the soul of the yeah. Russian people is pure and that that purity has only been repressed by one or another external force. I don't know that at all. I know, I know little about the soul of the Russian people, but why should I believe that it's yeah. pure? And again, I mean no, I mean no disrespect. Yeah, uh, I guess the way I feel about it is I would like to discover what the Russian soul would look like, you know, expressed in a state that actually, that there's like this connection, this uh, sort of decision-making power on the part of the Russian people. There's another angle to approach from, which is uh, the phrase that comes to mind, this is Davlatov, uh, a writer, Soviet writer who then immigrated to the United States. Uh, and I think died there. 
uh, and he, in one of his uh, columns, I think, for a, for a newspaper, like an immigrant newspaper in the U.S., said, we, and this would be in the 80s, probably, he said, uh, we keep talking, uh, keep, keep saying all these, uh, criticizing uh, Comrade Stalin, and for right reasons, but I still want to ask the question, who wrote all of these reports that ended up, you know, uh, sending, acting on those reports, the state sent people to the camps? Isn't there responsibility to be taken there on the part of the people? Uh, the state afforded you the opportunity to send your neighbor to the camp. You've used that opportunity. Yeah. So yeah, I don't I don't have an answer to that except that I would like to see what happens if Russian people have agency, political agency. Because as of now, I don't know if we I think we don't. Even with this war, there are a lot of supporters of this war in Russia, but uh they were still not making a decision. Can this, is it worthwhile to distinguish between um, responsibility at the level of how you live your life on a day-to-day basis versus some kind of political or collective responsibility? I mean, I think we Americans are responsible for what our government does ultimately. But... Uh, I may not be able, and you may not be able to affect what our governments mm-hmm. do. But we still have to live on a day-to-day basis. I mean, for example, for example, isn't there a baseline responsibility to stay in touch with the truth? To, to simply not be seduced or whatever by all of the noise and to actually hold on to reality. That's uh, Solzhenitsyn. With all the propaganda. And that, that's pardon? Solzhenitsyn. He had this tagline, live not by the lies. That's what you. That's where you start. Okay, so that's good company. I'm. I'm. I. I think. I mean, but that's an example of the kind of intellectual response. You know, the 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 to to not to not have your soul destroyed by by the lies and 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 all of that. Um, and I wonder if the possibility of resistance if it is if it isn't important not only for its consequences you resisted and therefore you changed the course of history but for its existential benefits of its it's again expressive way of living i <coughs> i fought mm-hmm. I, I i didn't just uh let it happen. I, 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 I somehow fought. Uh, so I, I don't know. I mean, I, these are just thoughts I'm, I'm having. I, I, you know, you say shame. Well, I think the shame will partly come from not living in a way that you can find to be dignified in the face of the situation that confronts right. you. At least you can feel good about yourself. You know, you, you, you have an account 
of the tens of thousands of hours or hundreds of thousands that you spend on the on the planet and and you can kind of you know takes a, a little bit of comfort in that let me ask you this is maybe out of the left field how did you feel about the war in iraq So I was appalled by the war in Iraq. I was appalled by it. Uh, I'm not talking about Afghanistan and the immediate response to 9-11. I'm talking about the prosecution of this war justified by weapons of mass mm -hmm. destruction where, where we conquered Iraq and deposed Saddam Hussein and, and let loose a whirlwind of Consequence. I mean, it was a fiasco. I, you know, I'm not a historian, but people agree in retrospect it was a geopolitical disaster. Um, did I feel personally responsible? No, I did mm -hmm. not. Uh, was I resisting? Well, after a fashion, I, I wasn't out in the streets, you know, in um, mass demonstration. But when asked to give a address at the commencement of my college, I, I spoke against the war. <laughs> That's not much, is it? <laughs> I mean, I was a public opponent of the war. I, I thought the war was a mistake. Uh, I thought it was a either. humanitarian disaster. That's Pardon? not nothing either. Might not be much, but it's not nothing. That's not nothing. Okay, okay. It's not nothing. But I didn't have the state police coming around troubling me for having right. done so either. Right. The reason I asked is, I don't know what to do with this, but uh, I've heard, like, in conversation with Americans, uh, a few of them told me, like, I'm sharing my thoughts about the war in Ukraine, and they're saying, that's how I felt when the war in Iraq started. It's, you know, I can't defend it. It's, uh, th there's no good reason for this war to take place, and And also, I feel powerless. And I, and I felt when I heard that, uh, I see what you mean, but it's I can't quite compare it to the Russian involvement in Ukraine because Iraq is far away from America. Uh, an average American doesn't have relatives or friends in Iraq. An average Russian does. And I still don't don't quite understand whether this is a a legitimate point. Uh, going back to the something we've talked about earlier, it's still a war. People are still dying. The fact that they're not your relatives should make you feel better about it. So that's, that's just one of the things that, one of the thoughts that I don't know what to do with. Um, Okay, so let me offer something. I don't know if this is right or wrong because I'm so ignorant of the context. But whereas the U.S. invasion and conquest of Iraq was the projection of this military force, of this ex-cathedral kind of thing that comes in, this is the U.S. invading Iraq, The conflict between Russia and Ukraine, the war, the invasion, seemed, feels to me, again, correct me if I'm wrong, more organic somehow. I mean, 
Russians living in Ukraine, the, the cultural connection of the meaning of Ukraine within the context of the, some Russian nationalist vision. I don't know what exactly it is, but I know there is a thing mm-hmm. there that needs to be reckoned with. And it just feels like the historical forces that are playing out here uh, in terms of the post-Soviet mm-hmm. reconciliation of what the actual arrangements are going to be in terms of national, uh, you know, uh, if I speak any longer, I will get into trouble because I'll, I'll be asking about the origins of certain national designations and how it is that they come to be legitimate and uh, whether they can be renegotiated. And I mean, renegotiated by force, re- renegotiated by conquest. That That's not a new thing. That's, that's, uh, that's something that's playing itself out. Uh, in a lot of different places in the world. And uh, anyway, I'm questioning the analogy at that level, at the level of what are the underlying forces that are driving the conflict? And uh, they feel very different uh, to me. They they seem, in, in the context of Ukraine and Russia, they seem to have a historical and cultural resonance that's not at all uh, analogous to uh, America's uh, uh, post 9-11 military adventurism. Makes me think, I haven't thought of this before, it makes me think that part of this, I keep saying the word shame, I don't know if that's actually the right word, but whatever. Um, part of the strong emotional response that I have to the war in Ukraine has to do with what you're talking about in that in the case of American invasion of Iraq, I think there is a stronger case to be made that this is a decision by the government and how much influence did I have on this. Whereas in the Russia-Ukraine case, it's not just the government. Like, I go back and forth on that. So I said that I don't think the Russian people had a decision-making power there, but what you're talking about is right. There is, that there has been tension between the peoples uh, before this government existed. Uh, within the Soviet Union, there were, uh, there were tensions between Ukrainians and Russians. Uh, and before the Soviet Union, too, the Ukrainians have always tried to achieve independence and uh, didn't have an easy time with it. And, and, and whether they're going to achieve it or not is being decided now. And it makes me think, it's another thing that I keep coming back to, and I'm not totally sure what I'm trying to, what conclusions I'm trying to draw from it, what I'm trying to do with this. But there is a quote that I've uh, said a few times, and I think I've said it in in a private conversation with you at one point. There is an interview from 2019 with Alexei Ristovich, he's an advisor to Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. And in 2019, so this is like, there has been a different kind of war since 2014, uh, when Russia annexed Crimea and there were these rebel regions that were supported by Russian forces, uh, but not anywhere close to the scale of the war that is happening now. And so in 2019, he's sitting there talking to a reporter and he's describing how he sees the situation, his analysis of the situation, and then the choices that he sees 
as uh, facing Ukraine in the face, staring Ukraine in the face, and what he thinks is the correct choice. His analysis is this. We can't afford neutrality uh, simply geographically. We're surrounded by, there's a, a huge border with Russia. Russia is a big military force. There's NATO on the other side. There are, Russia is the big issue there because already there, there's been a war, but he actually in passing mentions Hungary and he says, he says, what about Hungary? What about other territorial claims? Because there are parts of Ukraine that used to belong to other countries. And he says, we're not going to be able to maintain neutrality. Uh, we, we would need way too much money and resources for that to have our own standing army that can uh, defend us from anybody who wants to uh, see us as part of their camp. And so the choices we're facing are either we're going to join NATO or we're going to have to join the Russia, uh, Belarus, Kazakhstan, customs union is called. Um, and I don't want that, he says. We've been in the Soviet Union, I don't want the repetition of that. So I'd rather be a part of NATO. If we go in that direction and we get uh, whatever that's called path, uh, I forget there's a formulation, like NATO presents a country with, here's what you need to do to join. If we get to that step, Russia will invade and there's going to be a big war because Russia can't afford that. Uh, and the reason there is going to be a big war is Russia will need to turn everything into rubble here so that NATO is not interested anymore. NATO is not interested in getting a country that has no infrastructure as a member of uh, uh, the alliance. And so he's saying this is the fork in the road. Either we're going to be consumed by Russia in 10 to 12 years, or we're going to try to join NATO. We're not going to be able to right away because Russia will attack first. There's going to be a big war. And, um, and then the reporter says, well, which of these choices is better? And he says a big war with Russia, a victory in that war, and NATO membership as a result of that victory. And I think the reason I keep coming back to that exchange is his not... Like his his choices there, he, I don't know if his analysis is correct or not, but uh, the way he lays it out is our choices are constricted by our situation, geographic uh, situation, but we do have a choice. And, and then he argues for a particular choice. Uh, so he's not playing the victim there. He is saying we, we have to make a choice and what and he argues for one of them, and it's a I guess in his view, the least bad option I, I'm listening to you and and am moved by this way that you are framing things. Who is he? Again? He's an advisor to the president of Ukraine, and now he's like doing daily briefings on the state of the war. Uh, I guess playing a kind of military. It makes advisor. me ask the question: What choice do we have? And here and now, I'm talking about the United mm -hmm. States. What choice do I have? And I'm now talking about Glenn Lowry. What is what's happening over there to me? 
uh, as a human being and as an American. And when you, when you put it in terms of the Ukrainian uh, reckoning about the constellation of historical forces and where that leaves the Ukrainian nationalist a fork in the road choices to make, I'm, I'm asking myself, why do I care about how those choices are made? What, what, what is it? Is, is there a, a correct somehow? Uh, I, I don't trust the invocation of freedom here. That let the Ukrainian be free to the self-determination. I, I'm, I'm not against it. I'm not against it, but I'm, I'm just... I feel like it might not be uh, subtle enough, supple, uh, to be able to, it, it's black and white. Again, it, it's black and white. And I, I, so, I mean, here, putting it very sharply, why would the United States risk nuclear conflict with Russia about this dispute? Uh there's something at stake for the Ukrainians about returning to the um, consortium, the federation uh, that was uh, reflected in the in the uh, in the Soviet uh, arrangement. There's something at stake for Ukrainians, but but what is there at stake for me? Is is human freedom really being tested here? Um, what am I what am I missing? I guess it's supposed to be obvious. It's supposed to be obvious that this is uh the Spanish Civil War where you fight the fascists. Right? I mean, where you go and you fight the fascists. And and is that really correct? I have a friend. <laughs> uh I guess he wouldn't mind me naming him. It's Larry Kotlikoff, the economist, the best man at my wedding, the MC at my Festschrift conference, my dear good friend. He's an economist. He's very prominent, uh, writes books, has a column at Forbes magazine, and has a company, does personal financial planning, advising, and he, he's he's a force of nature. And he he's Jewish, and he descends some of his family from Ukrainian mm-hmm. Jews. And uh, he's he's all over the place talking about uh, Putin is Hitler. If you don't stop him here, he'll be marching and he'll, you know, uh, the Baltic states, uh, Poland, uh, you know, I mean, right. yeah. And, and he wants to uh, decapitate the regime. Mm-hmm. He, he wants to threaten Putin to assassinate him and, you know, all kinds of stuff like this. And uh, he's rabid. When you get him to talking about it, he 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 foams at the mouth a little bit. I mean, he's he's his eyes go gl- wild, you know, and uh, as he envisions the evil, uh, the, you know, of our time. And I I don't know if it's right. And the the stakes could be incredibly high. Um. So. <sighs> the, these forces that are working themselves out in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union are are how do they fit into the story of the 21st century in terms of uh of human liberty I, you know I, I 
I don't know. No, no one's talking about China. Um, now you're going to say, what about ism? I'm changing the subject. I'm not sure I'm changing the subject at all. I'm not sure I am. Uh, it feels like a big geopolitical complex thing. And the, the, the black and white colors that people are painting it in give me, uh, make me feel a little bit unsettled. Yeah. We're about at our time range. Let me ask you, let me try to ask a question that that's related to what you just said. Um, so when the Soviet Union fell apart, um, there was a 91 to 93 window uh, where the country was going to make some kind of a decision. There was a constitutional crisis in 1993 where the parliament and the president couldn't decide who's, who has higher authority. The parliament was controlled by the communists. The president was, was Yeltsin, uh, capitalist, ostensibly democratic. The crisis was resolved by the president ordering the tanks to fire at the building of the parliament. The same year, a new constitution was signed that um, shifted the balance of power significantly towards the executive branch and the president. The term used in Russia is Russia has become a super presidential republic as opposed to a parliamentary republic or a presidential republic. And I don't know what part, to what extent, the U.S. has played a role in this, but it did. If you go to the USAID website and they list in their accomplishments in Russia, they say, we helped draft the Constitution of 1993, among other things. And... Thank you. My lunch, <laughs> my lunch has just oh, wow. appeared. <laughs> yeah, that, that was my wonderful wife bringing me something to eat. I've I had some oatmeal this morning, and uh, now I'm having a protein shake. Nice. <laughs> so forgive me for drinking on camera. So, the the, the uh, I'm, I'm I'm presenting one illustration, but the broader point is. After the Soviet Union collapsed, there was an involvement on the part of the U.S. and the West more broadly in what the new Russia is going to look like. And there's some probability, I don't know how high it is, but there's some probability um, that Russia is going to repeat the fate of the Soviet Union. It could be that you know this evolves into a, either a bigger war or a cold war and the uh, regime's resources are going to be drained by it. And the country, not only if the regime changes, but there's, if the regime changes, then there's a possibility of country falling apart further. So if we just imagine that scenario uh, where Russia once again becomes a place where there is no center of power and forces from outside are able to play a part, how much responsibility do they have for playing a part? Uh, whether they should take that responsibility, whether asking that question is shifting the responsibility from Russians or you know whatever constellation of states replaces Russia towards external forces, and whether other questions of responsibility to be asked uh, of 
the people and entities that were involved in Russia of 1990s on the Western part as to what Russia has become, you know, in 20 years. So that's not a conspiracy theory. That, that's, a, that's a plausible account. Foreign interf interference at the critical juncture and political transformation in Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Favoring the executive and its conflict with the parliament over control. Yeah, there I'm not I'm not 100% um, clear on what exactly like how did that draft of the constitution look like? Mm -hmm. Maybe it's changed going from the draft stage to the final document, but there's definitely was So maybe the western powers and and the United States in particular are partly responsible for the dispensation that has emerged after 1990s uh which Putin is now at the head mm -hmm. of but uh he's the beneficiary in some way or another of the realignment that ensued which might have happened in part under influence of of a foreign and american um uh, uh agency i don't know anything about it i mean is it abandoning responsibility to raise it well no not not if that's actually what happened i would think that that would just be what happened I couldn't rule it out. I, I, I wouldn't say that, you know, that's not the kind of thing that the Americans or anybody would ever be involved in. But I, I, I know so little that I, I am loathe to comment further. Um, what if you rephrase the question to that, that latter part of, of my, would we imagine the scenario where Russia falls apart further? What role should the countries around it or the country across the Atlantic play in trying to establish a more kind of a rule of law situation on this territory. I'm not sure what you're asking. Is there not some collective responsibility at the international level for the developments internal to Russia that have led to the conflict with Ukraine? Is, is that the... The question could be a part of the question, but 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 the question I'm asking is, what happens after? Is there so like when the Allies um, conquered Nazi Germany, defeated Nazi Germany, there was then a plan on how to make sure that uh, the same kind of militarist interventionist. Uh, uh, sensibility does not get reestablished in Germany. Is there a responsibility on the part of the victor uh, in 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 that kind of a situation? Oh yeah. Okay, I'm not I'm not a foreign policy person here, but I, I want to say yes to that. And it reminds me of what I think wise voices in American political international affairs discussion. I'm thinking of Henry Kissinger. I'm thinking of John Mearsheimer. Mm -hmm. uh, Kissinger, of course, is a very famous Mearsheimer, less so, but he's a noted American scholar of international affairs, a uh, foreign policy realist of one kind or another. Uh, I'm thinking of this guy, Stephen Kotkin at uh, Princeton, the, right. uh, the uh, historian whom I heard talking about these matters. He sounded very wise as well. Uh, and... 
so I, I, I'm, I'm not going to embark on one of my typical wide-ranging kind of panoramic descriptions because I don't feel confident that I know enough. But the, the rough vision of it is that you have to have some theory of history. You have to have some idea of what the uh, trans, transformation of forces and alignments of power look like and, and how do you avoid conflict. And uh, uh, the, the victor who uh, sows the seeds for conflict in the future by not being wise or magnanimous, by pressing his advantage of the moment and uh, creating circumstances that are not stable uh, and that are rife for, you know, whatever... You, you would say it's partly responsible for the conflict that comes about that, for example, the Second World War was to some degree a continuation of the mm-hmm. First World War and ha- happened as it did in part because of the lack of magnanimity of the victors in, in the First World War, things like that. Um, I'm sure that uh, my friend Daniel Besner... This is the historian at the University of Washington who's been on the Glenn Show on a number of occasions. We have conversations, and he's a left-wing, radical, international affairs guy. And, I mean, he would, he would say that the whole Cold War was in part an unnecessary consequence of Americans' unwise attempt to try to dominate the global stage after the Second World War and not to... Not to uh, to, to demonize, he, he has it that we demonized the, the Soviet Union and, and created a, 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 an enemy for our own, you know, that we needed for our own purposes. Stuff like that. But uh, I do hear people saying that uh, we're going to fight, that there's a proxy war uh, between America and, and Russia, that the Ukrainians are pawns in a larger uh, chess game and... Certainly, to the extent that that's true, the, the players in the big game are the ones who are, are res- ultimately responsible. Yeah. Okay, well, you've talked for an hour and a half. I'll let you <laughs> go to your protein shake. Thanks a lot for this. Yes, I think that's a fair <laughs> amount of time to devote to this conversation. I've enjoyed it. Though. I've enjoyed it too. Thank you. Um, I... I Feel like I'm gonna be in this place of having questions, not having answers for, for some time. But uh, this helped, so thank you, Glenn. Okay, well, I I learned something from the conversation, and um, I'm gonna I'm gonna terminate okay. now.